Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you all. This is the Business Day Spotlight, your destination for African business made simple. My name is Mbudiwa Gavaza, and for today, we are getting into a discussion around financial inclusion, uh, particularly enabled uh, by the digital economy. Uh, fintech or financial technology is a theme or a trend uh, that we have uh, followed quite closely um, You know, on this uh, particular platform. Um, I think most recently we've been engaging you know, with the, the banks uh, about what is this digital transformation that you guys are talking about. Uh, but when it comes to uh, the financial technology players, the fintech players, um, they each seem to have found an area uh, within which they are specializing, um, you know, as a way to get uh, people that have previously um, not been included by the formal banking sector to have access um, to some of the advantages, um, you know, that uh, that digital services have to offer. So for today, we are going to be having that discussion and we're going to center it around the informal sector in South Africa and why it's important, um, you know, to include that particular sector into the wider formal economy and doing that uh, through participation uh, within fintech. And to help us to make sense of all that is Andy Jury. Um, Andy is uh, the CEO of uh, Mukuru and uh, Mukuru is a financial technology platform in southern africa that specializes in cross-border payments and remittances i think um, according to the latest information that we have they have a customer base of more than 13 million across 50 countries in africa asia and europe but i think we can get a sense uh, from andy himself around you know uh, maybe he can give us a fuller picture of what that actually means so Andy, greetings to you this morning. Madiba, how's it? Thanks very much for having me on your show. Perhaps so you can give us that fuller picture. We've uh, you know given a brief overview of what Mukuru is and you know maybe a couple of stats, but you as the CEO probably have a much uh, much, much, much better understanding and you could probably give us a fuller picture of what the business looks like. You've nicked my elevator pitch. Um, but, but essentially, um, <laughs> we, we see ourselves as a next generation financial services platform for Africa's emerging consumer. So it's really about how we can provide uh, financial products and services to people, I suppose you could turn it at the base of the pyramid um, and, and assist them on their, their financial uh, journey towards greater degrees of formal financial inclusion uh, and digitization on the way. Our typical customer exists in an environment in which uh, you know, probably, probably approximates what 65 to 80 percent of people in Africa uh, have to contend with, and as a result, there are 65 to 80 percent of transactions uh, in Africa take place in an informal, over-the-counter, cash-to-cash basis, where you have to be present, and the transaction ha- has to happen synchronously at that point in time. Um, so it's fraught with uh, quite a lot of friction. Um, there's limited scale that you can build you're always treated as a transaction. So really what we are trying to do is to take a customer base that's transacting in that environment and assist them with their financial services needs, whether they want to send money home, uh, as you sort of mentioned, our our heartland was in remittances, uh, but it's grown to a broader bouquet of products and services. So we think about send, store, and spend as the three use cases that we're trying to assist our customers with, which I suppose are the fundamental building blocks of any uh, financial services journey. 
over the last two decades, we've built up a base that today uh, exceeds just over 14 million customers, predominantly um, in Africa. Our heartland is, is traditionally in Southern Africa. Uh, and we really are looking to create the infrastructure, uh, assist our customers with those uh, journeys and, and walk in their shoes, understand what, what needs and wants they have, and then build products and services uh, to address that, as opposed to trying to retrofit capabilities that have been built for a different audience in a different time. It's very interesting, um, the fact that, uh, you know, your base is here. Um, you know, my understanding of your own journey is the fact that you've been, this is your seventh year, um, you know, as chief executive for, for Mukuru and, you know, just uh, tracking back, I've seen that, uh, you know, um, you've spent a good part, obviously, in South Africa, but also in a place like uh, the UK. And with that, uh, I guess, mind, uh, with that, with that view, you know, having been, uh, you know, having grown up, uh, you know, in a place like South Africa and, you know, you understand the informal economy from that point of view and then um, spending time, you know, play overseas and stuff like that. How do you view uh, the informal economy? Because I think for a long time, um, people have uh, have said that the informal economy has largely gone um, ignored, which is the big opportunity that fintech players such as Mukuru have been taking on. And I guess for me, the question is around how do you view, how do you view the informal economy, especially, um, you know, with uh, the breadth of experience that you have? And also maybe you could help us to understand why the informal sector tends to, has tended uh, to, 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 to go, um, you know, so ignored, especially, uh, I think, let me start, let me stop there and then we will, we'll continue. Cool. That's a multifaceted question. So keeping honest, <laughs> if I, uh, if I yeah. stray along the way. So I, prior to Makuru, I've had a pretty broad based set of uh, experiences. Some people have described it as a bag of licorice, all sorts, but I spent time in uh, financial services, uh, in banking and trading this in the UK. I spent time in consulting and I spent time in retail, uh, in Africa. Uh, and I think what that sort of uh, engendered is a love of customer facing businesses uh, that are decentralized and um, where, you know, you have to get the balance right between understanding a customer in their local environment and trying to scale that up by having uh, global platforms that can turn these into, uh, I suppose, businesses um, that become efficient. Um, but living in the diaspora as I have um, in the UK from time to time, my adult life is given me insight into what uh, many of our customers ex experience when they embark on these journeys of, uh, I suppose, in search of economic opportunity, where you arrive in a new place, you feel dislocated, you're structurally excluded initially from participating in the formal financial services ecosystem because you might not have the right paperwork or uh, you don't have a bank account. Um, and so, you know, I, I understand that sense of uh, arriving in a new place and feeling vulnerable and intimidated and Hopefully that's given me insight to, to really be able to, um, you know, get myself into the shoes of, of our customers and walk their journey and, and appreciate what is important, uh, in terms of driving that. I think the informal sector and, and it is, you know, vibrant in, uh, Johannesburg. It's vibrant in Harare. It's, uh, vibrant in Nairobi, you know, Lagos across the continent are on our uh, estimates. At least two thirds of the sort of formal, uh, in, uh, sorry, economy happens in informal ecosystems. Um, and they are, I suppose, 
networks of networks that existed, um, you know, they, they far predate the, the, the sort of formal ecosystems. Um, but they, they tend to, I suppose, perpetuate because in, in our experience, people are formally, you know, excluded from the formal um, ecosystem. So imagine you're a, a migrant who's arrived in Johannesburg from uh, Lilongwe in Malawi, uh, and you are trying to find gainful employment. Uh, the entire reason you've embarked on this journey is to come in search of economic opportunity to send money home to your family. Um, you need a bank account in order to get formal employment, uh, but you can't get a bank account until you've got formal proof of income. So it creates this sort of circularity where you are structurally excluded. So you have no choice other than to uh, participate in a cash ecosystem. And the cash ecosystem is fraught with you know friction and idiosyncrasies. If you want to send money home, you've got to take time off work, which means lost wages. You've got to get into a taxi uh, and drive down to Park Station in the middle of Johannesburg, which means incremental cost. You've got to find somebody who speaks Chichewa, which is your mother tongue. Uh, and, and that's essentially the only sort of um, flag that you can trust this person. You give your hard-earned cash to them and then it disappears for you know a week to two weeks before it gets to the other side. It may have um, additional fees that are incurred. And so that is a process that takes time um there's you know a lot that uh, could be done to lubricate that process um it's inconsistent um and, and it's very very inefficient and so you know what we've i suppose tried to do is to look at the reasons why this perpetuates and what are the sort of uh, elements that are required to bring more of the informal economy into the formal ecosystem because we all benefit from the network effect the more people that we can transact with the more interactions, the more efficient the, the entire network for everybody becomes. Um, and, uh, you know, we do, and in our mind, it, it distills down to three things, access, trust, uh, and education. And when we think about access, we're thinking about, you know, do you have the right infrastructure uh, to make uh, more people, um, uh, to make it easier for more people to transact, uh, which creates a sort of two-sided network effect because we have all these customers that are inaccessible to merchants and service providers that want to transact. Uh, and equally, so we have the merchants that want to grow their addressable market. And so there's an incredible network effect that happens from a driving incremental infrastructure um, access. I couple that with channel access. And so most people think that to participate in a formal digital ecosystem, you have to have a bank account or a wallet. We think of this differently um, because that's quite a big leap to take from where a customer is today in a cash economy. And so we think about providing access when you can transact digitally, but if you need to, you can still um, you know, pay uh, using physical cash as a medium for a while. And we take customers on a journey where we increase the levels of digitization in small but incremental steps over time. Um, trust is, I suppose, the fundamental cornerstone of any financial services economy because our money is essentially fiat. It used to say until very recently, I promised to pay the bearer. And that concept of promise is really important. And, so, and, and you know, if, if you have only ever transacted in an informal ecosystem, you've never touched a digital financial instrument, then the thought of trusting that ecosystem with your hard-earned money is a, is a massive leap for many customers to take. And so, again, we try and, you know, um, break that down and decompose it into bite-sized chunks. So if somebody wants to send money home to their loved one to pay for their school fees, to put food on the table, to pay for medical supplies, then we can ensure that that money is instantly available on the other side, which immediately creates a positive uh, trust loop and, and you can build on that over time. 
Uh, and then the last thing, I suppose, is education or empowering customers with knowledge uh, that, uh, you know, there are a myriad benefits uh, for them that await if they do increase their levels of uh, participation and digitization. And then you create a flywheel effect where people are pulling services uh, toward them. Um, and so you create that trust by uh, bizarrely, you know, increasing your physical presence and awareness. And so the more we put physical a representation of our brand down, the greater the degree of trust that people have that they can uh, leave their money in digital form and access it if there's a problem. Uh, and we also borrow from the informal economy, um, leveraging the ways that, you know, those informal networks of networks have created trust over time. So we'll find a titan in a community. It might be the leader of the church choir, the captain of the football team, who are power users of Makuru, and we get them to use their own personal brand to validate that we're an institution that uh, people can trust with their hard-earned money. At the end of the day, uh, you have to live up to your brand promises, and that's, I suppose, what we spend a lot of time uh, trying to ensure that we do. I like to tell the story, um, and I've told it a number of times, of the fact that a few years ago, I took a tour of some um, spaza shops in Umlazi, which is the biggest township in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, yes. And um, one of the most surprising facts for me doing that particular tour and engaging with the spaza shop owners is from a theoretical point of view, we understand that there is a lot of cash that is flowing in the informal sector, in the townships, we understand there's a lot of cash that's flowing through that economy. But going through that specific experience, which was uh, back in 2019 for, 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 for me, um, it was very eye-opening because it was the first time that I was able to, 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 to hear just how much is made by some of these spaza shop owners. Right. And I remember one lady, um, it was a spaza shop, uh, the usual um, container, you know, the ones that are made from uh, from an old container. It's it's your typical spaza shop. There's nothing special going on. And this lady was turning over 300,000 rand a month in this one spaza shop, which was mind blowing for me. Right. But it was it made concrete in my head just how big the informal sector is because this was literally just one spaza shop on one street in one part, in one section, in one of the many townships in this country. And that's just townships because when we're talking the informal sector, it's not about the township. It's just about, the, it's just about what's going on you know, under the surface that is not happening in the quote-unquote formal economy. So I understand the case, you know, um, everything that you've just said. And for a moment, if you'll allow me, I'm going to put on my debating hat um, and, and, uh, and ask you this because, like I said, we've been engaging quite a lot around uh, fintech and it's been one of the areas that I've followed quite closely. And when you talk to, I guess, the users in the space, um, as opposed to because in any market you've got you know supply and demand, so the supply side is obviously the providers, the likes of Mukuru. On the demand side of the equation, one of the arguments I've heard against, and I'm keen to get your sense on, is 
and I don't think Mukuru is guilty of this because you guys are mainly a remittance business. You're not into you're not a pri- you're not primarily a lending business or a bank. So it takes you out of that specific uh criticism in its entire um you know because the criticism was well when people say financial inclusion all they're saying is that they are just trying to get more of us indebted <laughs> right they're trying to because south africa is already known for being indebted in the formal banking sector um and one of the things that comes in is people then say well by financial inclusion all it is is you guys are just trying to mop up the bits of the market that you know haven't been indebted yet so keen to get your take you guys are not a bank but i i just to get your take on that yeah no not at all and and i definitely uh, i mean i wouldn't say that that's the primary purpose of a bank either <laughs> um you know our, our our perspective on this is that uh, we look to provide goods and services that transform people's lives and so we can demonstrate to them that uh, there is inherently a lot more value uh, by using a service like ourselves uh, than doing what they've done previously which is transacting in the informal uh, financial services ecosystem and generally we provide payment related products and services we do have uh, a growing wallet stroke card construct in, in South Africa uh, and other territories where people have been asking uh, for a pocket or a vehicle where they can store their money um and and you're right we're not a bank we're not regulated as a bank uh, we are reg- regulated to provide credit and we have done quite a lot of uh, piloting in terms of whether there are transformational uh, products there and really what what the feedback our customers have given us is that they are forced to take credit to bridge gaps in their payment requirements at the moment and they use informal credit means where they charge 50% a weekend and so a transferment of service for us actually reduces the level of indebtedness um but at no stage would i i back the argument that um uh, fintechs or banks are trying to ultimately uh, increase the level of indebtedness because if you encumber a customer with uh, you know, levels of debt that are too high then they stop using your product we we really want to build a relationship with a customer for life and thankfully our core products and services tend to lend themselves to quite high touch pretty regularly we need to create an ecosystem um in which our customers trust us uh that we have their best interests at heart um and that we can service them regularly when they need us otherwise they go to the other alternatives and that's the great thing about competition um and so customers tend to walk with their feet if they don't have great experiences but our experiences that we get a customer to three uses and then they generally tend to stay with us for a long period of life and so it's important that we can then cross sell them other products and services that they choose uh, and generally you'll see a journey that starts with needing to send money home whether it's cross border or domestically uh, you grow the level of trust they then trust you as an institution to store money in in your ecosystem digitally and then they broaden the products and services they use that might be other payment use cases it might be Uh, an insurance product it, it might be small small forms of credit and i think as you mentioned you know these spaza shops where they are turning over vast uh, you know sums of rands on a, a daily monthly or weekly basis uh, exist everywhere and if we as south africa uh, you know in global terms could harness the power of that think of the network effect if you could then lend against that base make it more efficient reduce the cost of those spaza shops because the supply chains work significantly more efficiently 
um, you know, increase the level of formal GDP. There's just such a powerful uh, effect that, that, that we could all benefit from. Um, and and the, sorry, the last thing I, I would say is that repeatedly, I think people often think that informal equals unsophisticated. Uh, and that's the most powerful sort of mind-opening journey that people could have is to realize that even though somebody may only be uh, transacting on a cash-to-cash -cash basis in an informal ecosystem, if they're doing the level of um, trade that you uh, sort of alluded to, then that's a very, very sophisticated operation um, with the shrewd, uh, you know, operator that, you know, if you provide you know, simple uh, financial services uh, lubrication, that could just, you know, grow the scale of that, that operation immensely. Yeah, I, I completely understand, uh, you know, where you're coming from. And interestingly enough, I remember the other insight that came from that particular experience, um, you know, in Umlazi was the fact that um, a number of these puzzle shop owners um, had banded together, you know, when it came to um, negotiating for stock. Um, in certain instances, because, you know, they had records to say, look at how much we are turning over, you know. Um, so your ability to talk to suppliers, um, you know, your ability to maybe even get lines of credit from suppliers becomes, you know, way more, um, you know, when you are able to do that. So harnessing, um, you know, what's going on in that informal sector, you know, it's a huge thing. One of the things that I'm curious about, Andy, is... Um, the what you call this the interaction because be, between what's called the formal sector and what's called the informal sector uh for your business in particular and i wanted to get your sense of i guess fl uh, for me it's a flows question um i'm gonna frame it from the point of view that uh um you know i i will say that i have um uh, what you call this i have received money uh through mukuru before um and it was a cousin of mine who did a transfer what i can't what i'm not sure they did a transfer i think they were in denmark they did a transfer and from a collection point of view i had to go and collect the money from a mukuru office right so for me the the, the question is in that particular instance someone would you know then say that someone in denmark just went into a formal bank and then i was then able to get the the money in an informal part of the town or whatever it is so maybe you could talk to us about that interaction that mukuru has between the formal and the and the in and the and the informal sector and and i guess maybe the bridges that you guys have been able to build you know, between the two so that, you know, people can be able, like what you said, um, someone who's in South Africa, maybe someone who's got a formal bank account is still able to send money to some other part, to use your Malawi example, you know, maybe you could talk to us about what that has looked like for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the important thing to recognize at the outset is you could understand where your customers are operating today. Uh, and then help them on a journey uh, towards, you know, uh, a more efficient, um, uh, I suppose, projection of tomorrow. Um, and we we are an open, interoperable business that is tender type agnostic, which I suppose is fancy, you know, financial services language for we don't care whether you use 
physical cash, uh, the type of currency you use, whether you use a bank account, whether you use a, a mobile wallet that is provided by a fintech or by a, a, a network operator. Um, we just want to assist you with transacting. And as long as it is a, a form of value or, or a store of value that uh, we recognize, uh, we'll process through it. The second thing to, to highlight is that whilst we bridge the cash and digital divide, that's our ultimate objective, everything we do is in the formal financial services ecosystem. So we have to KYC all our customers. We have to report all our transactions. We are licensed. We're a licensed business in, I think, 15 different uh, uh, countries across the world, most of them in Africa. We've got 45 different payment use case licenses. So every transaction that flows through is recorded. But what we are trying to do is create a very small hurdle of inertia that takes a customer from the environment in which they're currently operating, generally informal, uh, and takes them on this journey uh, through a space that they feel comfortable transacting in, uh, recognizes their own, and then sort of grow into over time. So in your example, uh, if your um, friend or cousin was sending money from Denmark, they could have done it by EFT transfer from a bank. That it could have walked into one of our partner locations. They could have even flipped it from their wallet if they had mobile money um, available. Uh, but they would have been uh, KYC'd in some form uh, on that side of the transaction. Uh, and equally so, when you went to pick the money up, if you were picking it up in cash, you'd have had to give some form of ID. Um, you probably would have had a question or two asked so we could establish that you know, it was a bona fide purpose that you were getting it as a gift from a friend, um, et cetera. So there are subtle ways of, uh, you know, making people feel included, opening the network up, um, but at the same time ensuring that you are upholding all the standards uh, that formal regulators uh, require of participants. We have massive controls and compliance capabilities uh, running in the background uh, to ensure that we aren't uh, exposing our customers or the system uh, to undue levels of risk. One of the things that's most interesting about um, this, uh, this formal versus informal debate and just talking to a number of fintech players um, has been this theme about, uh, you know, digital inclusion and digital, you know, through digital payments and digital platforms, uh, which is in essence a battle against cash. Um, because on the one side, you've got a huge cash economy. Um, I think the latest figures that we have is that, uh, I think, I think, right, Ah, maybe you'll correct me, sitting around 52% cash uh, overall in a place like South Africa. Uh, but anyway, uh, this war against cash, and now maybe wanted to get your sense around how important it's been, you know, if we're looking at a macro picture, because right now we're looking mainly at South Africa. Uh, but if we look at the continent as a whole, and South Africa's place, because South Africa, from my understanding, is the place that uh, has the most remittances, um, you know, to the rest of Africa in terms of money coming out of a country. South Africa is the biggest outbound market, and then I think Nigeria is the biggest inbound market. From from my understanding of how remittances work on the continent, and my question was around. What place do you think remittances have had, you know, in terms of that uh, that battle against cash? You know, platforms like, you know, Mukuru being able to send, 
you know, uh, a digital, you know, transfer as opposed to the example that you gave earlier where you give your money to someone, a bus driver, a truck driver, whatever it is, they disappear for seven yeah. days and you hope the money arrives on the other side. People sort of pitch digital money and physical cash money against each other. We just see it as a continuum. We really want to get people to to transact. Um, and so, you know, I we also see digitization very differently to many other people. Most people see it as a binary switch. You give somebody a wallet, they digitize the storage, they digitize the channel, they digitize the infrastructure immediately. Uh, and, and our perspective and having researched this, there are hundreds of millions of unfunded wallets uh, across the continent. Um, and so giving somebody a wallet without, you know, understanding how they use that without finding a digital means of funding that wallet is um, pretty useless in the end. It's great for a scoreboard. Um, but it doesn't essentially transform things. And so we think about digitization along, uh, across a range of axes. We have to digitize the onboarding or customer um, record creation because that allows us to treat you as a customer as opposed to a transaction. It also means we can do the basic KYC checks that uh, mean that we know who you are. We digitize communication, so we'll communicate to you via text message or engaging with you on WhatsApp. We digitize the customer engagement channel. So... If you talk to us on USSD, that's digital in our minds. If you talk to us on WhatsApp, which is probably the most popular um, channel that people use, or whether you use an app, those are all digital and it just becomes a richer journey uh, with more features over time. We digitize the infrastructure. So even if you were collecting cash from um, a friend who sent money from you in Denmark, that is a digital transaction, which means you get the benefits of the instant availability of cash, the movement of money, the foreign exchange. Uh, and only over time do we then engage with customers and highlight the benefits of digitizing the type of money that they use and, and highlight the you know, instantaneous uh, benefits that are available if you store your money digitally and then you can pay from the comfort of your armchair at one o'clock in the morning as opposed to having to go and stand in the queue and, and pay cash. And that has been, I suppose, a slow, steady, quite a lot of blood, sweat and tears, a lot of hard work to to drive those journeys over time. But we do see that customers digitize and then they use this exception more frequently. So if we have a customer who has a wallet in South Africa, they're using us somewhere between 15 and 16 times a month. Uh, somebody who's only using us on a cash-to-cash basis uses us one to three times a month. So anybody, everybody benefits from that. Um, and over time, our the type of money used in our ecosystem has changed dramatically. So five years ago, 90% of transactions were cash-to-cash. Today, that figure is less than 45%. Um, so we've seen a, a, a quite significant adoption towards greater degrees of digitization and the type of money that people use. You're right that in South Africa, more than 50% of transactions today still happen in a cash-to-cash environment. Um, and so we see there's a massive opportunity uh, because if you can digitize the type of money people use, then they use your services significantly more frequently. Mm. And the fees, because I think that tends to be one of the big things that people worry about to say, if I'm transacting digitally, the guys are going to make me pay, you know, uh, five cents in the rand or something like that. Uh, I mean, you know, customers have choice. And so uh, it has to be affordable. Uh, and generally, you'll find that most formal products are significantly cheaper than the informal equivalent um, on a direct uh, basis, but also taking into account the uh, opportunity costs. So if you are transacting digitally, you don't have to take time off work, which means lost wages, get into a taxi, which means 21 taxi fare, stand in a queue, 
you know, have the money not arrive on the other side for 10 days, et cetera. And so the entire experience in an informal economy may say that it costs you 5 or 10% on the sticker, but it's usually three or four times higher. But in a formal ecosystem, because you get the benefit of significantly more people using your network, uh, you, you know, you can over time uh, charge significantly less for those things. As in, you know, most ecosystems, the more you send and the more digital it is, the lower the costs uh, are to provide those services uh, and you can provide pass those on to, to customers. But as I mentioned earlier on, competition is an exceptionally healthy thing. And so either competition with the informal ecosystem um, or with other you know, formal players uh, is creating an environment in which people have choice. Uh, and, and so to counter that, you have to provide the best service across a, a number of factors, not only price or affordability, but also convenience, uh, speed, um, uh, accessibility, uh, trust. Um, and I think that's actually a good place for us to end off the discussion, uh, Andy, you know, around uh, what the competitive landscape, um, you know, looks like. We've spent, I'd say, the majority of today's discussion, you know, talking about that tension between the formal versus the informal economy, um, you know, cash versus digital payments. Uh, but um, for me right now, I wanted to end off around um, the remittance market. We've seen a lot of uh, guys that have uh, been coming in um, into the remittance landscape, you know, taking advantage of, uh, you know, these inflows and outflows that we mentioned earlier on, uh, the likes of Chipper, the likes of MTN, um, you know, in the in the in the formal remittance space, Remitly, World Remit, MoneyGram, there's a, a whole bunch of players. Fitch came out with an interesting report, you know, Fitch being, um, you know, part of the the global ratings agency, um, where they said that they see MTN's entry into remittance as being a game changer. And they suspect that uh, Vodacom and Safaricom will be next, you know, when it comes to getting M-Pesa to have a remittance, uh, you know, a remittance product. Obviously, because of their subscriber basis, just, you know, those three players alone, you're looking at over 100 million, um, you know, potential customer base. My question isn't necessarily, are you afraid of the mobile operators? My question is more about what does the pie look like uh, for remittance on the continent in the short to medium term, like I'm going to call it the next five or so years, because it's primarily been players like yourselves, you know, that were, you know, in this market. I think Mkurwa started in the early 2000s, if I remember correctly. Um, so you guys have been, you know, in this game for a long time. My question is just around what do you see your short to medium term existence looking like, you know, in a market that is evolving? It's a great question, um, and uh, it's one that if, if I had a dollar for every time I thought I've had a solution, uh, I'd be a wealthy man uh, because it continues to change <laughs> as the landscape changes. But, you know, in a formal ecosystem, you have banks, you have fintechs, you have uh, M&Os or network operators, um, you have the traditional money transfer operators like Western Union has been around since 1860, for example, and um, all... I suppose, providing different uh, arrays of products and services. But in Africa, 
that only forms a third of the remittance flow uh, ecosystem today. At least two thirds, if not more, comes from these informal network of networks. And Makuru has been around for a decade and a half. And we continue to grow and take market share, not necessarily from formal players, because we tend to come at it from a different uh, end of the landscape to the one that most of the formal operators start from. But we, we take market share from the informal network of networks. Um, and today, the biggest remittance market in Africa is between Cameroon and Nigeria, which is almost entirely informal. Uh, it's double the size by most estimates, bearing in mind there's an asymmetry of information, um, than South Africa to sort of Zimbabwe and, and Southern Africa, which is the second, second largest corridors. And so there is a wealth of opportunity for an array of different, you could say competing, uh, formal products, uh, to, to really have a go at seeing how we can transform um, the remittance landscape or the formal financial services uh, landscape over the course of the next decade. Um, and rather than competing head on with all those uh, players uh, across the entire landscape, um, you know, we are fortunate that there are many like-minded uh, businesses like ourselves who recognize that we may have strengths in areas where they don't and, and vice versa. And by connecting through partnership, uh, there's a sort of instantaneous uh, flow of funds and value that can be created by our customers and ourselves um, by, by providing that service. And very often, one plus one is is greater, you know, is larger than three. So, uh, and so there's synergies um, in in being frenemies in some instances uh, where you compete head on in certain markets and and leverage the capabilities of others. And I think you will probably continue to see that as people recognise that with the benefits of uh, technology, you can transform leverage, uh, scale, and a diversification of your business, not necessarily just by competing head-on, which will continue to happen in, in certain nodes, uh, but by scaling over time. Um, our, our philosophy continues to be that uh, in order to take somebody from the informal ecosystem in which they operate today, you have to take small but incremental steps to digitize the type of money, the way they transact, etc. So we don't see, for most of our customers, that the first move is to give them a wallet. Many other formal operators, um, including uh, banks and for the most part the um, M&Os, uh, tend to start by digitizing the type of money and then providing a broad degree of um, products and services. And I think we'll all end in the same place, uh, but they're going to be, uh, you know, there's certainly a space in the market for more than one uh, formal uh, approach to to gain credibility um, and, and strongholds in terms of uh, building market share over the course of the next half a dozen uh, years to a decade. Uh, which is why I suppose it remains in a super exciting space and uh, something you know that uh, uh, continues to invigorate us on a daily basis. So the pie is big. That is the message that we are receiving from uh, Andy Jury, who is uh, CEO of uh, Mukuru, talking to us about the state, um, you know, of. Uh, that tension, you know, that's existing between the formal versus the informal economy. And, uh, the case is being made to say that we need to, we need to find ways, uh, to get more people, you know, from the informal networks, um, you know, into the world of digital payments and the likes. And, uh, what the way that you do that is by doing it incrementally, you know, as opposed to some huge change, because there is, um, huge potential in the space. There is a lot of money that's flowing through there, but it requires changes in behavior. It requires a level of education. It requires a level of, uh, you know, understanding, you know, what the different uh, markets look like. 
I like the fact that, uh, you know, he characterized what the nature of the market currently looks like, um, you know, to say that about a third, um, you know, of you uh, because specifically they are, um, you know, a remittance player. And he mentioned the fact that uh, about a third, um, you know, of remittance uh, trade on the continent is being done, um, you know, through the formal channels, the banks, the, your MNOs, your fintech players, your 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 traditional, um, you know, remittance operators. But you know, there's a whole two thirds um, that is out there that's happening in informal, um, you know, through informal networks. And he says that is the real competition, um, you know, from Kuru. And he says that's where and how they have been able to gain market share, you know, in the market. And that's going to continue, you know, to be their strategy going forward. And uh, like any other market, there will be a number of uh, different players. We look forward to just seeing... Um, how things continue to progress over time um you know obviously you uh, we've spoken to uh you know mukuru in the past um i think uh, the last time that we spoke it was purely just around just trying to understand what uh, the cross border money market tra money transfer market looks like but for today it's been a discussion around um you know that um, you know what does it mean um you know to compete against the informal market and you know hopefully will get uh, Andy and his team back, you know, once again, because there's so many different layers, you know, to this, uh, you know, particular discussion. So definitely keen uh, to continue that going forward. So that's been us. Thank you so much. That was us talking to Andy Jury. Andy, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And that's been it for this edition of the Business Day Spotlight. Remember that you can find our latest podcast on Business Live. That's under the podcast Business Day Spotlight tab on Twitter. We're hashtag BD Spotlight. And remember that you can review and subscribe for free on iono.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you choose to get your pods casted. I've been Mudio Gavaza of the Business Day and Financial Mail. And this has been another edition of the Business Day Spotlight, which is a multimedia live production. So from us and the rest of the team. It is a good evening, good afternoon, and good morning.